Hello there, and uh, welcome back to uh, Andrew's Philosophercast. So, hopefully, you've uh, you've had a good listen to uh, to our first one. It was just sort of uh, a statement of intent, really, and a, a basic statement on the sort of the role that the, the Socratic method has on on philosophy, uh, particularly uh, with an OCR sort of uh, flavour to it, and in terms of uh, how uh, a basic understanding of, of, of Socrates' importance, uh, his influence. And this, this introduction of the Socratic method uh, uh, can have on, on philosophy uh, today and philosophical thinking, uh, epistemology, epiphenomenalism, and all that sort of stuff, all that jazz, if you want. Um, so today, what I um, wanted to discuss with you, um, what I wanted to, to talk about was, was sort of um, the role that the Socratic method and, in some part, the, the martyrdom of Socrates has had on, uh, for me, what is what is one of my favourite philosophers. I love this guy. So, I'm just going to come out and say this. I like Plato a lot more than Aristotle. I find Aristotle a little hacky, if I'm, uh, if I'm honest about this. So anyway, Plato. Well, again, let me transport you back to ancient Greece. It's almost like... An 18 to 30 holiday, this, but with uh, more olives, beards, uh, and unfortunately less mythos, and, well, that's, that's enough of that. Um, so, Plato. Well, let's have a look at Plato. What do we know about Plato? Well, we've seen that Socrates, we can see him as this, this slightly annoying but charismatic figure who um, introduces sort of uh, healthy criticism into the role of philosophy and thinking about thinking, sort of metacognition. So, Plato, um, probably a, a slightly poorer figure historic than Aristotle. Um, we know that he was big lad. Big lad, Plato obviously meaning big head in, uh, in sort of ancient Greek. We figure from that, almost like um, the macho man Randy Savage, he was a good wrestler. Uh, I like the thought of him sort of going off the top turnbuckle like Chris Benoit with his Plato big head finishing move. Um, but we see that he was, was a great scholar, a great art, and a great thinker. A great thinker. Now, what Plato introduces in the world of the philosophy is, for me, utterly, utterly groundbreaking. I, I adore Plato. I adore Plato. I mean, it's, it's not for any reason that sort of all modern-day philosophy can be described to, 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 as, as footnotes to Plato and Aristotle. Now, if we have a look at the dominant sort of uh, logical argument format that people use, unfortunately, in day-to-day life, with the exception of mathematics, it tends to be a posteriori argument, which is an argument after the fact, which is an argument based on empirical observation. Uh, water boils at 100 degrees, because I'm watching water boil at, at 100 degrees, I can empirically verify this, and we'll get into sort of the impact on, on posteriori argument on uh, verification and falsification later on when we, we go and look at religious language, which is personally my, my favourite topic. However... Plato introduces uh, an alternative to posteriori empirical-based arguments. He introduces, or doesn't introduce, but perhaps he, he makes famous, the idea of a priori methodology, which is an argument uh, totally different to posteriori reasoning. Priori arguments are arguments that make sense within the boundaries of their own, their own, uh, well, within their own boundaries. So perhaps the best example I can give you to support this, this concept of priori argument is mathematics. 2 add 2 equals 4. It will always equal 4. Um, 
because within the boundaries of mathematics, that is the argument itself. It is almost an inductive argument. Now, you may think that this, this priori methodology is inferior to posteriori arguments. I would beg to differ with you in strong terms. In strong terms. And Plato demonstrates this uh, with his theory of the forms. And I'm just going to quickly tell you about this, tell you about these arguments, tell you about what they mean, and so on and so forth. And then we will look at the strengths and weaknesses of them. Plato outlines his theory of the forms in his book, The Republic. Now, The Republic, let's just quickly dwell on this first. What we've got there is that Plato is a political thinker. He's outlining uh, a perfect society, and in the closing chapters of the Republic, he does define a perfect society as a society where kings are philosophers and philosophers are kings. Now, for me, I think this is really, really important. The theory of the forms, uh, his demiurge, his arguments uh, on, on, on what society should be and what they shouldn't be, his theories, for me, are, are to a political and social end. Plato isn't just putting these, these arguments forward. I think he is, his major theory of the world of the forms and his major criticisms of empirical argument are both pure philosophical reasoning exercises and a criticism of Athenian society at the time and the limitations of posteriori argument. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right, what does Plato say? Well, and how, less important of what he says, well, less important, more important, is the way that he says it. Now, Plato uses allegory and analogy to highlight his theories. And he famously uses the allegory of the cave. The allegory of the cave to, uh, to put forward his theory on the world of the forms and the nature of reality and where we can find truth in our world. And what he states is this. He says, imagine, imagine all of you, imagine if there was a bunch of fellas locked in a cave with a light behind them and they were chained in such a way where they could only see the shadows cast uh, by the light behind them. He says if they lived all their lives there and they heard muffles and they saw things, uh, saw images cast on the, on the cave behind them, he said that would be their only understanding of reality. He says imagine, imagine. Much like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, imagine one of these figures escapes. Let's call him Glaucon. And he runs out of the cave and he goes out and he's blinded by the sun. And he's like, oh, crumbs, that sun's bright. He then runs back in to tell his, uh, to tell his f fellow, fellow prisoners, Morgan Freeman, what life is like. And they don't believe him and they say he's a rotter and they ignore him. And Oh, isn't that sad? Now, allegory, brilliant. A story that works on three levels. On level one, it's a brilliant story of uh, escape, <laughs> fight against the odds uh, for a bunch of heroes. Level two, I would like to go back to our little talk on, on Socrates uh, in the last episode. For me, um, Plato's Allegory of the Cave can be seen as a, as a retelling of the story of Socrates, of a man who saw the light, who came to, to tell us about the nature of reality and, and how we treated him and how we treated him poorly. But the third level, the third uh, part of this onion that we are peeling together, is, is that this can be seen as a method to express Plato's theory on the nature of what really is, and perhaps more importantly, what really is not.